Let us uh, start in prayer. Heavenly Father, give us this time that we may turn to you. Give us hearts that would find security in your promises. Give us minds that would ascend to your revealed word and remove the veil from our eyes that we would take delight in your providence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the first lesson of a six-part series that we're doing called A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. Let's see if I can get this clicker working right. Okay. This series that we're doing is from a book uh, by Dr. Stephen Nichols. You may be familiar with him. Um, Dr. Stephen Nichols is uh, president of the Reformation Bible College, the chief academic officer for Ligonier Ministries, and a Ligonier Ministries teaching fellow. He has authored or edited over 20 books and hosts the podcast Five Minutes in Church History and Open Book. He earned his PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. This is going to be our schedule over the next nine weeks. Um, today, we're in a chapter called A Time for Confidence, and we'll be breaking on December 1st. Uh, December 8th, we'll be going into confidence in God. On the 15th, confidence in the Bible. We'll be breaking uh, on the 22nd and 29th for Christmas, and then we'll go into confidence in Christ, confidence in the Bible, and confidence in hope. I'd like to spend a couple of minutes in Psalm 10 that I just read and ask the question, what sort of world do we live in? Uh, what sort of world do we live in where the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord? What sort of world do we live in where the ways of the wicked prosper at all times? What sort of world do we live in where the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might? I, go ahead and shout out if you have any ideas. <laughs> It is. There's a lot of depressing stories in the news these days. What, is, what do the stories in the news tell us about this world that we live in? 
For yeah, for the uh, for the recording, Art says man is basically good. Um, man is basically selfish, and what was that? Spiteful. Prideful. Is that what it was? Maybe both. <laughs> okay, so what I'd like to, to a bit of the answer to that question is, uh, you know, we, we live in a, a fallen world. It's how the Bible presents it to us. I'd like to spend a moment and talk about um, the fall and the curse starting from where we first get exposed to it in Genesis chapter 3, and, think, and talk about the vocabulary that's used in the Bible to describe the, the situation that we find ourselves in today. This is reading from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The first time I read that as a Christian, it put, and, and was thinking about it in terms of the fall and the curse, um, it kind of took me back a bit, where, where we read that for dust you are, uh, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. I've always th or thought about this dust to dust concept, like, um, uh, you know, that we are Star, star stuff, you know, like, uh, like this is a, re, re, uh, we are all part of uh, um, the universe and we're returning to the universe and there's something uh, peaceful about such a concept. But this is not a peaceful statement. This is uh, God made us from dust and he is sending us back. It's part of the curse. Um, so, for a little insight, I also wanted to spend a, a moment here looking at man's position in the fall. And this language here, we have two questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, question number 18 reads, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? And the answer is, the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or lack 
of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. And question 19 goes on to ask, what is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? The answer is, all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. So what's being presented here is that we are by nature sinners and by nature respond in a sinful way to this fallen world. So in this book by Stephen Nichols, um, is about really how we respond to this fallen world. Do we cower? Do we capitulate? Or do we cave? It's difficult to ask these questions, you know, from a, um, I guess maybe it's easier to answer these questions from a theological or doctrinal perspective. But when it comes to dealing with the reality of what we see on TV or what we experience in our newspapers, you know, what the conversations that we have from day to day, it's a, and you're put on the spot, it might uh, provoke maybe a different response. So here's the question. Uh, what is your response when you're sitting around the TV with your family and this comes on the TV. This is a 2015 television ad for Chobani yogurt, which has a woman waking up and enjoying a cup of yogurt in bed. Before she leaves, she wraps herself in a sheet and playfully runs her finger along the foot of another person in bed with her. As the commercial ends, we see that the other person turns out to be a woman. In accordance with our book, it says the helpless cower. How do you respond to this situation? It is. You recognize the, the fallenness of our world. Right? Right? We're, we're actually going to go into an, another example just like that in a minute. But... Um, yeah, so this is uh, an attempt to try to normalize. Um, the question is, how do we react? Yes. Disgusted? 
Ja. That's, That's true. We so, can't expect them to behave that way. But our sensibility should be shaped by what we know is true about creation. And, and that image should create that reaction from us because it is hmm. rebellion against the way God created man and woman. All men and women, not just those two are going to say it. But So, so the question is really, um, if, if we recognize that this is to be expected in the unregenerate, then uh, does that create a sense of ambivalence? Uh, I, I think so. Uh, right, so we are, we're cutting against culture, yeah. trying to make a claim that this is wrong. And Our hearts should be the same to them as, here's the gospel, and if you respond, here's what it says you can no longer do. Just like Paul turns to the church and he, and he says, so were some of you. You used to be this way, but now you cannot. Right. So there, there is a certain sense in which we cannot expect the unregenerate to behave in the way that a Christian behaves. Um, uh, if if we do, then we are robbing uh, the power of the gospel. You know, we're 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 uh, minimizing what it means to be regenerated. Um, but let's. Yeah. The, Let's let's just go ahead and get this. Well, <laughs> We shouldn't. Oh, I think we should. Hmm. Here's the <laughs> This thing is throwing people down. Are they dead? And we're dealing with individuals. Yep. We've got to figure out how 
Those are two different topics, I guess. Well, I mean, we should never be ambivalent about sin. Uh, sin is an affront to the God that we... Let's keep going because that's kind of, I mean, all of these conversations are good because they are really the topic of this book, and hopefully some of these will be answered as we try to press on through it. Um, <laughs> all right, so next part. So what is, what is your response when you're sitting around the TV? So this is part of what Dennis was just saying. You're sitting around the TV with your family, and another commercial comes on. This is Wells Fargo, where they are happily lending money to two mommies as they adopt a child. As Dr. Nichols puts it, this is nothing less than an attempt to normalize a formerly culturally marginalized view. The helpless cower, but how do you respond? I guess the question I'm really getting is, is like, if you're sitting around with your children, how do you explain this to them? What is the appropriate reaction, what, and what is your gut reaction? My reaction is sadness mm -hmm. and confusion at our society. Trying to say, that's wrong. It, I mean, it's trying to solve it. It is an opportunity. Yes. And they may be picking, they may be surprised by how you react as well, because uh, being in a public school setting or something like that, they might just pick up on the idea that this is normal. Well, I think that's a good point, too. All right, so. Again, next question, what is your response when you're listening to the radio with your family? And uh, Macklemore and Ryan Lewis's 2012 rap song, Same Love, comes on. I don't know if you listen to rap music. Um, or Casey Musgraves' Follow Your Arrow comes on. Let's, uh, these are the lyrics to Follow Your Arrow up there. I just wanted to read it. Make lots of noise kiss lots of boys, or kiss lots of girls if that's something you're into. When the straight and narrow gets a little too straight, roll up a joint or don't. Just follow your arrow wherever it points. Yeah, follow your arrow wherever it points. From, the, uh, from Steve Nichols' book here, it says, uh, in 2014, this song won Song of the Year, at the Country Music Awards, prompting one headline to read, a gay-loving, weed-smoking anthem, just one country music's song of the year. But this is not just an issue of uh, same-sex type of relationships. It's <clears throat> Right. Mm -hmm. 
self-righteousness type of attitude versus... So this is the U.S. Supreme Court justices. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy has thundered that gay marriage is a noble purpose. Centering his argument on dignity, he has expressed shock at the narrowness of any opinion that dissents from the recognition of gay marriage. To be pro-gay is to be pro-human dignity, the new legal argument goes. U.S. Supreme Court justices also unfortunately practice what they adjudicate. Back in 2013, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor presided over separate gay marriage ceremonies held in the Supreme Court building itself. And the question of this book is how do we respond? Right. It's a good perspective. The question here now becomes how how do we respond or have go ahead. Go ahead. Someone referenced the elder generation of the church can't and don't agree with. You're just saying there's an agenda behind it behind the So if we don't have a plan, it's kind of the point of this book, that if we don't have that plan that you're talking about, then we do end up cower, capitulating, or what was the other one? Caving. Um, so, and this, that is what we have done. So this is, our next slide is this. Um, well, if we, let's see, uh, how, how should we respond? Well, Dr. Nichols says that the helpless also capitulate. Uh, this is David Gushy, a Southern Baptist theologian and ethicist presented in the book, who once wrote against homosexuality, and then he changed his mind. Since then, I believe he's left the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and on the right is uh, progressive pastor and author, Brian McLaren, who also changed his mind in the same way. Maybe a familiar face. Rob Bell bowed before the idol of Oprah. Here's what he told a national audience on her Super Soul Sunday. I think the culture is already there and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2000 years ago as their best defense. It's time for the church to catch up, Bell says. In order to do so, we need to look past ancient letters. Instead of looking at the dusty pages of the Bible, we need to look in front of you at the flesh and blood people who love each other and just want to go through life with someone. Ignore the Bible. It's irrelevant to life in the 21st century. Capitulate to culture and cultural norms and cultural pressures. The culture is there. Let's catch up, Bell says, joined by a tragically growing number of others. But these are 
only individuals. Entire Protestant denominations and Christian institutions are also choosing the predilections of culture over God's holy word. They care more about the drumbeat of our day than the very words of God. We see so many people changing their views, it can look like it is a time to capitulate. But it's not. This is our community. I don't know if you can see up there. Um, in North American contexts, we have far more exposure to adherence of other religions than people did at any other time in our history. When the founders of the United States spoke of religious freedom, they were mainly talking to Protestants, a few Roman Catholics, and a few Jews. Islam was an ocean away. Eastern religions were farther still. Consider the multiplex of religions present in any given suburban neighborhood. What does it mean to live in a religiously plural society? One rather loud voice tells us it means to tolerate. And what that means above all that no room, that there is no room for an exclusive view. How can anybody be neighborly and think you're sincere, even kind neighbor who happens to follow another religion is bound for hell? It's time for pluralism, we are told. In this environment, it can seem like a time to cave, but it's not. So what I've, what I've presented here, it may be hard to see. Um, actually, it's even hard for me to see. Let's see. Uh, the, the, this is a distribution of non-Christian religions in the United States. The purple is uh, where, where the major non-Christian religion is uh, identified. And the purple is Judaism. Uh, the dark or the green is Islam. The red is Hindu, uh, yellow is Buddhist, and the light blue color up there is the Baha'i faith. On the left-hand side of the screen, this is our community, Potter and Randall counties. And what I wanted to point out here is, starting, starting at the bottom, you see the Evangelical Free Church of America highlighted um, with 75 adherents in 2010. This is our church. But what is the community that we're part of? Going up from there, we see, compared to our 75, Reformed Judaism is 165, the Baha'i faith, 409, Buddhism, this is one, one sect of Buddhism in our community, over 1,000 people. Seventh-day Adventists, 1,100 people. Mormons, 3,000 people. Muslim, 5,000. Church of Christ, 6,000. And the Catholic Church is over 17,000. We're definitely in a mixed society. 
the premise of this book is that this is not a time to cower, cave, or capitulate. It is a time for confidence. The portrait being painted here is one where there is a loss of consensus. And a loss of consensus comes, and with a loss of consensus comes a loss of public ethic, public civility, and public virtue. We have been become unable to tell right from wrong. Dr. Nichols says that this is a time for confidence, and our confidence must be in God. All else will disappoint. Let me read a story. He presents us with a story in the first chapter of this book. Of this man. His name is Henry Wanyoike. One day in May 1995, one day changed the life of Henry Wanyoike forever. He was all of 21 years old. And like many of his fellow Kenyans, he dreamed of making his mark as a distance runner and becoming a national hero. He had a 5K time of 13 minutes and 50 seconds. That's 10, that is less than 10 seconds away from the 2012 Olympic gold medal time. Distance runners don't peak until their late 20s, 30s, or even 40s. At 21, Wanyoike appeared to be headed for a bright future as one of Kenya's running superstars. Then, one day, he had a stroke and lost his sight. Depressed and disillusioned, Wanyoike drifted for the next several years. He was a lost soul. He went to a school for the blind in Kenya. An administrator at the school knew of his running past and saw his flailing present. So he suggested that Wanyoike take up running again. Within a few years, Wanyoike had set world records at the Paralympics and at the World Championships in the 5K and 10K. In 2005, he had a phenomenal back-to-back -back marathon performance. Over 26.2 miles of the streets of London, he set a world record, finishing in 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 31 seconds. However, he did not have much time to celebrate or recover. Seven days later, he broke his own record at the Hamburg Marathon in Germany. He had since held political office and has established a foundation for the disabled in Kenya. He has single-handedly contributed to raising awareness of the disabled in his country and has developed or an, and has helped many formerly marginalized people find places where they can contribute. He also continues to train with the goal of breaking his own records leading him on. In a nation of superstar runners, Wanyoike has taken a prominent place among their ranks. Runner's World magazine featured the life story of Henry Wanyoike, calling him a visionary. When he first started running after Again, after his stroke, he stumbled and fell a lot, even with guides to help him. With his sight gone, he was afraid 
But he learned that there is something far better than sight. Michelle Hamilton, referring to something Wanyoike had said, put it this way, vision, as Wanyoike likes to point out, is more powerful than sight. What we need today, more than sight, is vision. Seeing in our day easily leads to fear. In fact, this has been the case through most of the ages. One of the things that has separated the prophets of Israel from the people of Israel was the difference between sight and vision. The people saw the temporal and they could not get past what they were seeing. God granted prophets vision of the eternal, which towered above and overshadowed the temporal. Where the people of Israel saw problems, Israel's prophets saw God and his promises. Where the people saw allurements and temptations, the prophets saw God's call to purity and God's call to covenant obedience. Where the people mistook the shadows for the eternal and abiding reality, the prophets saw beyond the shadows and saw straight into the truly real. If we only see what appears before us, we may easily shrink back in fear, or worst, drift away from our first love. We can be enticed away by appearances. The book of Proverbs offers vivid accounts of the destruction that comes from the wake of being fooled by alluring sights. Seeing can lead to our ruin. Instead, we need to cultivate our vision. When I am going through times of difficulty myself, I often pray that God would open my eyes to see the beauty of his works of providence. I'm going to take a moment here to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Dr. Nichols explains in this book that the word confidence actually comes from the Latin word meaning faith. Con is a prefix meaning with. In this compound word, it functions as an intensive, 
full trust is the idea behind the word confidence. Reliance, firmness, these are synonyms of the word confidence. But we sometimes think wrongly of faith. We tend to think of faith more in terms of degrees or intensity, like I need more faith. This thinking especially manifests manifests itself when we think of salvation. More faith, however, isn't the answer. My faith isn't the answer. The answer, in other words, what saves us is the object of our faith. Let's try to think about faith through an example. Let's say that you are in the desert, dying of thirst, and someone saves your life by giving you a bucket of water. Do you say to that person, thank you for giving me this bucket? Or do you say, thank you for this life-giving water? Faith is only the bucket. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls faith the instrument of our justification. It's the object of our faith that really matters. Oh, and uh, by the way, uh, can anybody tell me who the wielder of this instrument is? Faith faith is the bucket. One one answer, Holy Spirit. Who who is the wielder of our faith? We have God and the Holy Spirit. Any other ideas? Jesus? Got the Trinity covered. (laughs) We are? Who said we are? Um, Roxanne says we are. So we, got, we have us and we have uh, all persons of the Holy Spirit, or of the, of the Trinity. Um, so we have to be careful not to call uh, the persons of the Trinity uh, the wielders of our faith. Right? So um, faith is the instrument. Faith is a gift, right? but it is us who uh, wield this instrument. Um, to say that it is, it is God who wields this instrument, we start to slip it down the path of antinomianism. Um, to think that uh, everything that, uh, that, that the path that we walk down is a path that God walks down for us. Um, so let's see here. So going back to our discussion about the fall and the curse. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question. What doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And the answer is to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligence 
with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. So it's faith in the person and work of Christ. And what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. So the next upcoming lessons are going to be talking about the object of our faith. As we look over the next weeks, we'll see where we find, uh, where we find our security, where we find those pillars of truth um, are, are laid out before us. We can look for faith, or we can look for our confidence in God, we look for our confidence in the Bible. We look for our confidence in Christ, in his gospel, and in the promised hope. In one sense, we are by nature sinners. And by nature, we respond in a sinful way to this fallen world. But in Christ, the veil has been removed. And we have been freed to find rest in him. It is my hope that over the next nine weeks, we will learn to grab hold of this powerful truth. That's all I have for this morning. Uh, so do you guys have any questions or thoughts? For understanding of the definition of wielding. Wielding? Do you think in some sense we might, uh, the older generation may have already carved out a little world for themselves where this doesn't become something they're dealing with on a regular basis? Yeah, they're a little more inclined to do that. We mm -hmm. Opportunities to engage culture? Yeah. And there's intentionality behind it as well. It's not just kind of where we're... we're uh, going through a gradual transition, but there's an active desire to stamp it out, right? I've said before that our culture is actively. That's true. Oh, go ahead, Ken. In another sense, there's also never anything new under the sun, so we can look to what has been provided in God's Word as the solution to this problem, too. Go ahead. Yeah, kind of the, the purpose of this lesson was just to get everybody riled up <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to, to, get, to make you unsettled, you know, as we look forward to what the, you know, where do we look for our hope, you know, but uh, go, go ahead. Good. Okay, I think we're about out of time, so. Good discussion. <laughs>